As you'd meet me in Psalm 80, we're going to read a psalm this morning, not the entire psalm, but a portion of Psalm chapter 80. As you go there, I want to begin today with a proverb from Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27, and you don't have to turn there. You might jot it down if you want to look it up later, but Proverbs 20, 27 says, The spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord searching all the rooms of his heart. Let me just say that again. The spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord. You, you could say inside of you is the light candle, the light of the Lord. And what are lights good for? To shine in dark places. Well, the proverb uses it as the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord to light up the hidden rooms, to illuminate the stuff in your life. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, we, neg we make that in the negative. We say things like, God's light shines to reveal all of your hidden sins. God's light shines to reveal all of your hidden secrets. Let me tell you something. There's no such thing as a hidden sin to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> There's no such thing as you're doing this and the Holy Spirit's got to go to work on you so he can find it. He knows all, and he is not counting your transgressions against you, which means that he's already paid for the hidden rooms. The rooms don't need light put in them so that God can find it. The rooms need light put in them so that you can find it, so that you can go into that space with him. So the, the, the spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord is a perfect segue into Advent 4. Because we have been lighting a candle each week as a representation of bringing light into a dark world. The, the, the Advent wreath is circular because in the end, we, we are in, enclosing, enfencing, entrenching ourselves around what in... If we had a Christmas service, usually you have a white candle in the center that's the Christ candle and you light it on Christmas Day. I'm saving that for the year when... We do have our own Christmas service and we'll light the Christ candle, but you, you're rallying around what will be the centerpiece light, Christ as the explosion of light in the middle of the dark world. Um, Christmas Eve is typically, when you celebrate it alone, not in an Advent Sunday, but typically it's light Sunday or light service, the service where you celebrate light. Advent 4 is the week when you celebrate love. And so since we're doing them both together, it seems pretty appropriate to me that the love candle on light, L-I-G-H-T, light Sunday, is the final light of the Advent wreath. And so love and light come together. Well, that had me thinking all week long about the combination of these two ideas, love and light, and where we see that personified the most. So in the true spirit of Advent, which is prophetic leading to fulfillment, okay, waiting on what's to come, then let's go Old Testament first. As we lead up to what is to come, and we know, of course, that that which is to come is the whole reason we call it Christmas. Christ is the whole reason that we're, that we're leading towards. So Psalm chapter 80 Verse number one, I want to read the first seven verses. I want to show you a couple of things. Remember these songs, psalms are songs. Songs have oftentimes repeated melody. 
in pop music, we would say, don't bore us, get to the chorus, right? Um, why? Because the chorus is what we remember. The chorus is the repeated words. The melodies of the verse repeat, but the words repeat in the chorus. The Psalms do that from time to time. They repeat, and they do that to bring the singer back to a simple theme. You're going to find three repeats in this little reading. Beginning in Psalm chapter 80, verse 1, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth between the cherubim. That's on the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus ultimately sits between the cherubim at his resurrection. Before Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, stir up your strength. Come and save us. Now watch for this. This will be your repeat. Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? You fed them with the bread of tears and you gave them tears to drink in great measure. You made us to strife. You made us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Here's the repeat. Restore us, O God of hosts, cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. Look at verse 19, final verse of the chapter. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. You heard that three times. Restore us, O God, cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. Did you notice sandwiched in there was a statement that sounds a lot like this. I don't want to read it word for word, but the statement that he made was, O Lord, how long will you be angry at us? He asked this because the idea was that if God wasn't looking at you, if his face was not on you, they saw that as judgment. Imagine him turning his face from you. Imagine God turning his back. I'm not saying God was turning his back. I'm saying this is the perception they have is that God has sometimes turned his back on us. And the prayer in Psalm 80 is look at us in the face. Make your face to shine upon us. You've heard that phrase a lot in the Bible. Make your face shine upon us. Why your face? Because if you were facing, then you were, you were presenting yourself to them. You weren't not presenting your back. So you weren't angry. You were hopeful. You were loving. And so the psalmist is saying, give us your face. Present us with your face. Show us who you are. We, get, we start to get hints of what this is in fulfillment. Remember in John 14, when the disciples, and we've quoted this to you a thousand times, and I'll quote it 10,000 more, because it, to me it's one of the important passages in the New Testament. When the disciples say to Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. It's Jesus' way of saying, if you're looking at my face, you're looking at God's face. Which is an incredible thing because, go to John chapter 1. It's an incredible thing because John tells us that no man had ever seen God's face. The Old Testament told us that no man had ever seen God's face and lived. But John wants to present the arrival full circle. There's a reason why love is the finality in the Advent wreath. Because you come full circle, you recognize the love of God. You hope, you step into peace, that brings out joy. And all of those things fashion inside of us the love of the Father. That love then goes outward to the world. But in John chapter 1, and we're doing some setup with reading today, and I got some points we want to get to in a moment. In John chapter 1, verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Just concentrate on that for a moment. The hymn here is the Word. 
It hasn't yet called him Jesus, but we know it's Jesus because he's going to take flesh and, and live among us. The word, the spoken word of God, be, takes on flesh and we call him Jesus. But in John 1, 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Remember what we said from Proverbs 20? The spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the rooms of our heart. So God's light in us, the Bible says in John 1, 4, his life was light. If his life is light and the light of the Lord is in us, that means the life of the Lord is in us. Put life and light together and you get Jesus. The light of God, the life of God, personified in the life of Jesus. If that candle is alive in us, then this is the light of God. This is the life of God. Look what it does in verse 5. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so just as Proverbs says, the spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord, that life that is Christ shines in the middle of our dark lives. And then verse 18, to me, is the capstone of this idea. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who's in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And the word declared is a big old Greek word, exegesis, which doesn't really mean anything to you except it's a real good Bible study word. Exegesis is exegetical. Exegetical is when someone reads a scripture and brings out what it means. So what we're doing in preaching is we're being exegetical. We're reading a verse and going, here's what it means. The curious thing is that the Greek uses the word exegesis. Jesus exegeted the Father. In other words, Jesus showed you what the Father looked like. No one had ever seen God's face, but the only begotten Son who lives inside the bosom of the Father, He declared the Father. I say all of that because Psalms 80 begs God to turn its face on us. Hey God, look at us. Shine your light on us. So God does. He becomes a baby in a manger. That baby in a manger grows into the man who is anointed at the Jordan River, who sits in the synagogue in Luke 4 and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He hath anointed me to preach the gospel. That personification of the light and the life of God walks on the water and feeds the 5,000 and heals the sick and raises the dead and casts out devils and ultimately takes the sin of the world into Himself and dies at Calvary and resurrects as a brand new man, ascends into heaven. The entire Christian story built on the fact that God took the prayer serious. Hey God, turn your face on us. And God said, okay, I will. And then is birthed as Jesus. And even in his own life, not all, all of the world realizes what they're getting. But they're not getting a new version of God. They're getting God as he really is. This is why Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm what Dad looks like. I'm what the Father loves like. I'm how He would treat the, the, the poor and the stranger. I'm what He would do to His enemies. And any other version that we've propped up and called it God, Jesus is declaring, isn't my Father. It, it doesn't, if it doesn't look like Jesus, it doesn't look like God. And therefore, God does shine His face on us in the face of Jesus. And so the light and the life come together. Well, what's it, what in the world's that got to do with love? Well, it's easy to just go, well, God did it because he loves us. And then we all just nod our heads and go, yeah, God did it because he loves us. But we can do better than that. And the New Testament works hard to do better than that. 
And it has to work hard to do better than that because our perception has been for so long that maybe God was mad at us and maybe God is angry at us and maybe God's working against us. And if you're mad and angry and working against you, you surely can't love them. And so we wondered if we're loved at all. And so John, who writes this brilliant gospel, is also attributed with writing a little letter at the end of your New Testament. So go to 1 John. Now, I'm not going to pose a real scholarly argument over whether or not they're the same John. I like to imagine that they are. Scholars are a little split. As far as I'm concerned, it doesn't really matter. What we have is a letter that obviously falls near the end of the canon, not just because it's in the back of your New Testament, but because of the timing of the things inside of it. And this, John, this version of John's letter does, gives God two attributes that define who God is. They don't simply define how God acts. They define who God is. Look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. Now, if you're an underliner, I got three words coming up for you in this verse that you're going to want highlighted. Or if you highlight using your digital Bible, there's going to be a spot for you to highlight. This is important. Verse 5, this is the message which we heard from him and we declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. As far as I'm concerned, God is light is good underlining material because you want to know what God is. If you've ever wondered what God is, God is light. In Him is no darkness. So if there's darkness in it, there's God. it's not God. I don't mean God won't step into the darkness. God always steps into the darkness, but He's not the source of it. And so God is light is one definition of God. Look at chapter 4, same book. This one's a little more popular. We like to quote this one a little more in the New Testament or in the New Covenant Church, but we ought to put both of these together, and that's what we're going to try to do today. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, we have known and have believed the love that God has for us. Underline this, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So chapter 1, verse 5, God is light. Chapter 4, verse 16, God is love. Which one is it? Well, of course, it's both. But maybe it's both because they're not two different things. You see, God is not two different things. One of our tenets of Christianity is God is one. Right? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but they're not three gods. It's who God is in His expression. And who God is in His expression is not hate, but love. It's not darkness, but light. But He's one God. Which tells me that not only is God light and is God love, light is love. If God is light and God is love, then God is both. And if God is both, then they're both the same thing. Light is love. And the light that become the life of men is the love that become the life of men. So God's love is personified in this person, Jesus. God is both love is his light. When he shines into the darkness, he shines from a place of love, not from a place of condemnation. When he shines into the spot that needs his light to penetrate it, it doesn't shine because of guilt or shame or anger or fear, but because of love. So when Jesus enters the world of darkness, he enters it not on a mission to destroy. He enters it on a mission of love. 
to show the world the love of God. And by stepping, and, and you might say, why must he step into death? And I'll get into this a little deeper in a moment, but Jesus will come and live a life by and large below the radar when it comes to the measurements and the metrics of the world. And then step into death and die as a criminal and a vagabond, as a stranger, as an outsider. And why must this be? Because Christ stepping into this world steps into the worst of us. He can't step into the highest of us. He must step into the lowest of us. He steps into the lowest of us so that he can suffer as we suffer. He can live as we live and show us the love of God expressed through that life. I want to I land on just a few points. Kind of some takeaways. I don't always do that in every sermon where I want you to walk away with one, two, three, four things and really lock it in. If you don't lock anything else in today, lock in God is like God is love. If, I mean, if that's all you can take away, go, who is God? God is light, God is love. Put those together. That's what Jesus looks like. Because I think if we'll have that as our metric, it w- it'll be harder for us to be deceived into the false, into false doctrine. It'll be harder for us to be deceived away from a loving Father because we'll always see Him in Jesus. So this, this has become my personal metric. If I can't see it in Jesus, I don't attribute it to God. So people go, God's doing this in my life. Now, I'll say, well, does, did you, can you find Jesus doing that in the Bible? No. Okay, well, then it's really good chance it's not God. Because if, if Jesus didn't do it, it, it can't be what God's doing. Jesus is the expression of God. He is light. He is life. So Jesus is what the Father looks like because he's the light of the world. God is light. God is love. Thus, Jesus is God's love to the world. So let me give you some, some thoughts First of all, the Apostle Paul presents the cross of Jesus Christ as the proof of God's love. Go to Romans 5, 8. Here's a a great one to have in your repertoire if you want to understand the love of God. And who doesn't? And I'm I'm not, I'm saying this as sort of as an under-shepherd to sheep to go, look, you're going to have, you're going to need proof in your day-to-day walk about the love of God. Have more than one verse in your arsenal. This is my advice to you. So you, you say, well, I got John 3.16. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Great, great verse. Have that. But have more than one. You know, you got a tool bag. Put some other tools in there. And there's a bunch. And I've given you a few today to underline and to look at and to dwell on. Here's another one that you need. If you, I don't mean you got, I don't, I don't want you to feel like you got to go home and memorize them, but these are the ones you want to dwell on once in a while. Look at Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is such an important verse, but that word demonstrate is sort of like show off or put on display. It's the kind of word we would use if we had a storefront window here. And we put goods in the storefront window. Why would we do that? So that you'll walk past and see it and come into the building, right? That's the word used in the Greek. God puts his love in the storefront window. And it's a cross. So that when you come past, you'll look and watch him die for you. And then want to enter into the door and go, I want to know more about this God who would die for me. So God put his love on display In that while we were yet sinners means that God didn't wait for us to get things right in order to die for us, which means he doesn't wait for us to get things right in order to love us. He loves us in spite of ourselves. 
This is why I say to you, God loves you and there ain't anything you can do about it. Why? Because while you were still a sinner, he died for you. Why did he die for you? Because you were good, smart, slick, rich, famous? No, you weren't even here. So why? Because he loves you. And so the cross becomes the proof of God's love. He demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I've always been a little bothered at Christmas, just some full disclosure, in the church. I've always been a little bothered that we spend so much time with baby Jesus and we're excited at the arrival of Jesus. That doesn't bother me. But that we would get through those services and not land at the cross. Because if Jesus is born in a manger and then lives a, a, the life that he lives in the Gospels, but it doesn't end up at the cross. It's just not the same story. I mean, there's not very often that we celebrate a life because of a death. Like if he hadn't died the way he died and then resurrected, we wouldn't even remember his birth. And it's always bugged me just a little bit that we leave with just the image of baby Jesus and thank God he has arrived. We can't leave with just baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes. He came to express the love of the Father by going to the cross to die for us. I know we save this for Easter, you know, like Passion Weekend gets Jesus dying on the cross and resurrecting from the dead. But the nativity story isn't the same if you don't know the ending. You know my point? Like we, why do Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus? Because we know how this ends. We know that this baby grows to be the, the very personification of the love of God. But even if he just died of old age, it wouldn't work. Because by Jesus goes, greater love hath no man than this, than he would lay down his life for his friends. So Christ becoming our sin and dying at Calvary makes, takes his story up 50 levels. It, it ratchets up the birth of this baby to go, this is God laying in this manger. This is the personification of God's love for us. This is God saying, all of you are going to die. That's not an encouraging message, but it's also not a shocker. All of you are going, this is God speaking to us at, at the nativity. All of you are going to die, and I haven't done that because I'm God. So how can I really know you? And how can I really prove to you that I actually love you if I don't go through what you go through? So by being birthed in that manger, Jesus becomes really man, not some fake man, some ghost that just sort of floats around above the... No, he becomes really man. And he steps into suffering and pain and he dies at Calvary. And in his death, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this is God experiencing death because you're going to die. And so God can step into death because you're going to die. And then we get the resurrection where the stone rolls away and a brand new man comes out. And it's God saying death no longer is the last word. Because he lives, I shall live also. And that personification of the love of God is I love you too much to let you die alone. I love you too much to let you face the end of life without knowing that I have stepped through to the other side. The arrival of Jesus changes everything because it shows us what God, 
how God would treat his enemies. It shows us how God would navigate the world if he were here. But it's more than what would Jesus do. It's the arrival of God to show us that he steps into sacrificial death. That he doesn't have to pick up the equipment of the world and win the way the world does. But he can step into our death so that he can show us that there's life on the other side. So that all of us, as Hebrews says, who all of our lives have had the fear of death, don't have to be afraid any longer. Because that baby that was born on our Christmas, born to die, but born to do more than to die, we're all going to die. That wouldn't be special. If he was born and just died, that wouldn't be special. But born to step into the death of all humanity. Paul called him the last Adam. That he went to take upon him all that we are. So the cross is proof of that love. I think the reason I was always kind of bothered is because the manger is just the arrival of love, but it's just the arrival of love and potential. It's not the arrival of love and action. Jesus in the manger is just a baby. I, I don't believe that if you picked up baby Jesus and you were sick, you'd get healed. You know, I know, I know we like to imagine things like that. You got a little sniffle. And then you say, hey, Mary, can I hold your baby? And you hold the baby. Ooh, and suddenly you're breathing fine. You know, just like contact healing with the baby Jesus. That I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see that that's how the anointing flowed through Jesus in day-to-day life, much less as baby Jesus. So Jesus is love and potential as a baby, but he's love and action on the cross. Karl Barth great Christian theologian said this, except we see the cross at Golgotha, we cannot hear the gospel at the crib of Bethlehem. You know why we see the gospel when we celebrate Christmas? Because we know how it ends. That's why when we see baby Jesus, we go, thank God for that. That, That's that's the love of God right there. And he's going to grow into that which we celebrate that we are disciples, not of that baby, but of that one who dies and who raises. The baby is potential. That's also why this is beautiful at the end of Advent because it's dark, 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 dark. A little bit of light, a little bit of light, a little bit of light, a little bit of hope, a little bit of peace, a little bit of joy, a little bit of love, all of it, but it's all just potential. But what the potential's birthed as is something new, something fresh. And then we flip our natural calendar into January and we we start a brand new year, which we're going to do in like eight days. And in that moment, we are all excited because it's a new year. The old year is gone. We got a new year. and we got Anything can happen in this new year. All that stuff from last year is gone. And that's beautiful that we have that right at the time we get the potential of love, that baby. Because what comes next isn't predetermined. We got to live it out just like walking with Jesus. And that's where I want to land, living it out. If the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord and the light of the Lord is the life of the Lord and the light of the Lord is the love of the Lord, then the light that shines inside of us is the love of God. Here becomes the great challenge of discipleship. What do we do with it? Because we live in a world of cultural Christians. Now I'm saying this and I'm throwing me in. I'm not being judgmental. Please. I'm trying to say it in a way in which I'm the biggest duck in the pond. We live in a world of cultural Christianity. And by cultural Christianity, it's the good thing to be a Christian in America. 
like you want to be a Christian, or at least you want to claim Christ, go to a church, that gives you a moral code. It helps you if you run for office. It helps you if you're on the school board. It helps you if you're a local business owner to be Christian. Try to be a different faith. See if you get the same cachet, especially in this part of the world. Okay, so there's cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity has its ideas about what TV should be like. What kind of songs should be performed. How people ought to conduct themselves. What's the proper way to live. Cultural Christianity doesn't really need day-to-day Jesus. It just needs the recognition of being part of the club. So when I invite you to follow Jesus, I'm not inviting you to cultural Christianity. At the garden, I couldn't care less about cultural Christianity. It's unimpressive, downright offensive, as far as I'm concerned. I want to follow Jesus. I want to hear what Christ says on how I'm supposed to treat my enemy and how I'm supposed to love my neighbor. I don't want to take my cues from what people say Christianity is supposed to look like because I'm only 46 and it's changed about 500 times in my lifetime as to what it's supposed to look like. I don't have enough lifetimes to live to figure out what pleases people about Christianity. So I choose to follow Jesus to the best that we can doesn't mean we got it nailed doesn't mean i'm right you're wrong you're right i'm wrong it means following christ into the way of sacrificial love that means taking it very serious that he's light and that he's love and that he put them both inside of you because if he put it inside of you then you have to do something with it you're required to you can't sit on it jesus said no man lights a candle and puts it under a bushel remember why does he say that Because he's reminding you that there's an obligation that if you have light, then you have love. They're the same thing. And there's an obligation to do something with it. It's why you've received it. This is how Jesus navigated the world. He walked around knowing he was the personification of God's love, which meant he had to do something with it. He couldn't just go on vacation, kick his feet. He tries. There's moments in the Gospels where Jesus like leaves his hometown. Remember when he goes to Tyre and Sidon? There's this great little story in the Gospels where Jesus goes to the seacoast town of Tyre. T-Y-R-E. T-Y-R-E. It's mostly Gentiles. He has no real good reason to be there. I think he's on vacation. I really do. Every time I read it, I think he just needs some time off. If you read his schedule, it's been really hectic. He's tired. And he goes to the beach like we do when we're wore out. And when he gets there, a woman shows up and goes, would you heal my daughter who's grievously vexed of the devil at home and Jesus does because when you're the love of God you go on vacation but it doesn't you understand what I mean like you get a break but loving people doesn't get a break caring for those around you doesn't get a day off And so that love flows out of us. So let me land in Matthew 5. Let's go to the Sermon on the Mount just to put some scripture on this for you because this is, and this is that light under a bushel passage. I quoted it before I read it, but I want you to see it now. Verse 14 of Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
By the way, the city set on the hill is not America. We've, we've heard that in politics for years. America is the shining city on the hill. Politicians borrowed that from Puritan preachers who preached that about colonial America. They said colonial America is a city set on a hill in a dark world. 20th century politicians picked it up and went, America is a city set on a hill. Jesus said it first. Not about Rome, not about Caesar, not about colonial America, not about 20th century America, but about you, disciples. You are what lights up the world. Everywhere you go, you are brimming with potential. You're baby Jesus, but it ain't enough to be baby Jesus. This is why I told you that. It ain't enough to be baby Jesus. He's got he's to go show the love of God in sacrificial death or it's just potential. I think cultural Christianity is love and potential. Like we're culturally Christian, which is potentially we could do something. But too often what we do with it is pat our own pockets or get another position or use it for votes or get a promotion or make our resume look better. It's baby Jesus Christianity. It's potentially we could love the, our enemy or we could just love them. We could live that out. We could make that a part of who we are. You're the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill. You can't be hidden. They don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. You put it on a lampstand and it gives light to everyone that's in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. One of the great juxtapositions of the gospel is that at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls you the light of the world. And then in John 8, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. So which one is it? It's not either or. It's both. It's Christ in you that is the light of the world. Going where you go. Talking where you talk. Loving as you love. So that whenever you go out, you don't go out with just a resume of Christianity. You go out with the love of God on display, loving, being light in the middle of a dark world. We light the fourth candle because it's the love light. It's also, it also reminds me of my favorite secular Christmas song. I'll be home for Christmas. I've always loved that one. Where the love light gleams. So I kind of stole that idea because I was kind of singing, I'll be home for Christmas. Where the love light gleams is a line from that song. I like that line. It's a secular Christian, or Christmas song, but it's about as Christian as it gets. Because what we do is we run to where the love light gleams. That's what we do in our darkness. We go to wherever the love light is. Well, in Christian terms, Christ is light, Christ is love, Christ is the love light. He is the full circle of the love of God. He is showing us what God looks like and He's deposited it inside of us because the spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord. And so we are the light. And don't be dismayed. He's not asking you to save the world. He's not asking you to change the world. I know we're in a culture where we try to teach people. We teach this to young people all the time. You guys can be world changers. Go out and change the world. Too big a responsibility. Jesus is the world changer. You're just a little piece of the light. So go be the light. Go be the light in your corner of the darkness. All that's asked of you. Because you're going to encounter darkness. But 
You can't stop the darkness, but you can be the light in the middle of it. We've had our own little darknesses lately. Families in our church have had darkness. Darkness of death and loss and sickness and pain. And we don't brush those darknesses under the rug in some move of faith like they don't exist. No. We put what little light we have into the middle of that darkness by showing people that you love them. Showing them that you care for them. Not lying and saying you understand how they feel. Because you don't. Because it's not yours. I don't presume to tell a soul I understand how you feel. How could I understand how you feel? But what I can do is love you. I can let you know that somebody cares, that somebody's here if you need them, that, that there's a hug, or there's, a, there's hope, or there's, there's whatever it is that you need in that moment. If I can provide it, there's that. And that might be the best that we have, but that's okay. Because sometimes the best that you have are all that you have is enough because it's all that you have. And you can't be what you're not. Well, what are you? You are the light. You're at least an expression of the light. You're no one savior. And this church is no one savior. And we don't pumping out little Jesuses. We're just pumping out, hopefully, we're, you know how each week we light the candle from the week before? That's really what we're doing is we're lighting your, your love light based on the light of Jesus. You're hearing about Jesus and it's setting your soul on fire just a little bit. And you're taking that light into the darkness to do something with it. It's Christmas. It's the arrival of Christ. But it's, that's just potential, man. That's just a baby in a manger and you can put your fingers on it, but it's not, the, it's not the full thing. It's just, it can be. What we arrive at on this Advent is love, but love in potential. When I see you, I see love in potential. And the fullness of it is to go live it out each day. Would you bow your heads? I, I want to pray an awareness of the love of God. This is a twofold prayer as far as I'm concerned. An awareness of the love of God for you. Individual revelation that you have that. Whatever that looks like. That that began today or that it's fulfilled today. And that you also accept or at least agree to wrestle with the mandate the instruction that you're the light of the world. That's my prayer. It's going to be a twofold prayer. Father, I pray right now for a revelation of your love for every person at the garden. That, Father, for some it become the very beginning of a fresh revelation. God loves me, and there's nothing I can do to shut off that faucet of his love. He loves me enough that he's already died for me, and he's already raised for me, and I can't, I can't erase that from history. That's done. That's the love of God. Give us that revelation. For some, Father, it's just a fresh coat of it. They've already had that painted over on their heart. They just need a fresh coat of that love of God. For others, maybe it's the first day that light shines. And may they run towards that. And then, Father, for all of us, whatever, some people, the, the, the revelation they have of the love of God is like a big old raging inferno in their life. They see it greatly. Some, it's just a flicker. But for all of us, may we take serious or at least begin to wrestle with the idea that we are the light of the world. Take it serious enough that we do something with it. Wrestle with it enough that we don't forget it. In Jesus' name, amen. Isn't God good?